Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 73 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, and I'm while I'm burping, <laughs> excuse me, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also, and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, first thing I have to do is apologize. Uh, this episode is being posted a couple days late, uh, and it's not that I didn't record the episode, but the first thing I, uh, which I did, I did record the episode. Unfortunately, there were two problems. It wasn't very good, uh, but more importantly, the sound was awful. Um, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you may have noticed that last week's episode sounded different. There was less low end, The you know, my voice sounded a little tin canny, um, and something changed in my setup. I don't know what it is. Everything looks the same to me. I'm still not sure what changed. Hopefully it sounds, uh, you know, relatively normal today. Um, but, uh, yeah, that bothered me. So, uh, upon review and reflection, I thought it wasn't a good episode. The sound wasn't great. So I said, forget it. Um, there wasn't enough time to re-record it anyway. So, you know, I gave it a couple of days. Um, you know, my life's pretty busy with school. But I, I trusted that there would be a time in the week where I could um, uh, record an episode, get it up during the week, and, and we'll be back on track next Monday as well. So sorry about that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's free. <laughs> you can't, I mean, you can't really complain, right? But I will say, what's important about, um, what's important about it for me is consistency. You know, uh, I have been very happy that I've been able to put up an episode every week without exception for the last uh, 72 weeks. You know, that's pretty great. And uh, was really hoping that we could do that for 100 episodes. You know, 99 of of 100, it's not bad, right? And by the way, I mean, I'm still getting the episode out. So um, if you were a teacher, you'd probably excuse it, right? You'd you'd accept the late assignment. So whatever it is, 99 out of 100 or even an excused tardiness, um, that works for me. Uh, I did not watch the Super Bowl last weekend. Um You know, I feel a little cliche because I'm one of those people who doesn't follow sports. But the person I I don't want to be is the people who kind of make a big deal out of not liking sports. You know, the people who call football pointy ball. Um, I I do have to admit, though, I I have no idea who played in the Super Bowl. So if you happen to follow that, and um, I hope your team won. I hope you made some money. Some people like to bet on the game. Um, But I hope you... uh, Hope you enjoyed that. If that's uh, if that's your thing, <clears throat> I uh, I made a mistake. Probably <laughs> I made a mistake a couple weeks ago. I got roped into this group text chat with my friends. I had this group of friends. You know, I I lived in Arizona for a long time, and uh, the the group of people that I hung out with when I lived there is just very different from the type of people I um have come to know or associate with in the last. 12 years or so. I think part of that is they, we were living in Arizona. It's just a very different culture uh, in Arizona than there is out here in the Bay Area. Um, and also, I was just in a very different place in my life. You know, I hung out with a bunch of people who liked to party, and a lot of them liked to fight, and um, just a different crowd. And uh, especially since shelter in place uh, took effect, we were doing this thing pretty regularly for a while where we would get together on the app House Party which uh, is not a great app. I'm not too evangelical about it, but 
you know, if you want to connect with friends and use something other than Zoom, just use your, your phone. It's a pretty decent app. And we've been connecting uh, on the weekends for a couple hours and whoever could pop in would pop in. And it's been really nice. You know, I laugh so hard when I connect with those folks. And I I was going to say maybe it's a thing about guys. It's probably a thing about most people. But there's something about your friends, even if you don't speak to them all the time or you haven't spoken to them in years, some of these people I haven't spoken to in years, when you reconnect, it's like nothing's changed. You know, you just kind of fall into old habits and, uh, you know, maybe it's just a part about getting older. But when you're young, you hear older people sort of pining about the past or telling stories from the past. And I don't know, there's something almost sad about it. Like you think their best days are behind them or something. But as I get older, you know, you you just get together with your friends and you share old stories. It's, uh, I don't know, it's like there's a spell that gets cast. It's both, It's funny, you get sort of caught up in the energy and everybody's having a good time and laughing. But it is a bit of a, I don't know, it's restorative. You know, our buddy Tyler told this hilarious story about, you know, he had been drinking or partying the night before and the next day he and some other, uh, a few of our other friends had gone to this place called Peter Piper Pizza, which is like a Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know why these relatively grown men are hanging out at a children's place and eating pizza and probably playing video games or something like that. But he had horrible gastrointestinal trouble and he had to like run to the bathroom and uh, there were some kids in there who just couldn't believe the sounds that he was making. And it's the type of thing that you would see in a, like a Ben Stiller movie or uh, like There's Something About Mary or, um, you know, just some kind of teen comedy that sort of, sort of gross out humor like American Pie or something like that. And at the time, I'm sure it was mortifying for our buddy Tyler. Um but in hindsight, now you have this hilarious story that you reflect on when you have some distance from it. That is just, I, I haven't laughed that hard in probably five years, you know, where you think, oh, you can't breathe, your stomach's hurting. You really get a workout, you're laughing so hard. And um, I don't know, I really enjoyed it. It's something I realized I don't have enough of in my life, you know. I, I, even then, when I was hanging out with that group of people, I was always a bit of a loner. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I necessarily mean that in a sad way. I just mean... I've always kind of kept to the periphery, for lack of a better word. I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, I mean, people, people are endeared to me. I think I'm, I'm part of the group, but I'm kind of comfortable just kind of staying in the orbit, you know, and, um, and, uh, I mean, I've always been that way. And I look at where I live now and I don't really have a close circle of friends, um, which I don't have strong feelings about myself. I mean, I, I sort of am who I am and I, I do what I want and that's sort of what my life is. But, um, you know, there is something when you reconnect with those old friends from your past and tell those old stories where, you know, it's fulfilling. It's been nice. But I think the whole reason I brought this up is, you know, as I get older, there's something about the notifications on my phone which are, they're just increasingly annoying. And, uh, I think I'm probably already in sensory overload with having to be in front of the computer screen all day, whether it's for school on zoom, uh, which by the way, I have a funny story to tell you about that, but, um, uh, working remotely on the computer for work. And, uh, now it's like, if I'm at home and my phone's going off, it just like drives me up the fucking wall. And, 
you know, a lot of people are a part of group text, but I'm, I'm not, but I got roped into a group text with all these friends from the past who I've been meeting up with on the weekends and, you know, typical guy shit. They're just, we're sending memes to each other and sort of making fun of each other. And, but they were going back and forth about the Super Bowl. And I'll wake up sometimes and I'll have like 75 messages in this group text. And I just think, Jesus Christ, man. I have to like, uh, you know, like in your iPhone, you can sort of, um, what's the word? I don't know. You can sort of mute uh, notifications or uh, whatever it is. So at least I don't hear the buzzing going off. But there was one day, it's, my phone sounded like a fucking pinball machine. So <clears throat> I am sore though. I've been uh, work. I dude, I've been working out. Every, I've worked out every day since I started, probably like ten days ago. Sometimes I work out twice a day, but I think I've lost like five pounds in the last week and a half. And it's sort of funny when you work out too. It's like five pounds is not nothing. It's good. And even though you 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 know you you haven't really been working out long enough to really have an impact. Are you like me where like you start getting physical or after you sweat and it's like you think you think there's going to be like drastic results like right away? Like I shit you not, uh, I, I haven't weighed myself in a long time, but I got on the scale and in my mind in terms of how I, how I, how I feel, uh, which I already feel like a thousand times better just in my body, you know, just being physical and moving about, breaking a sweat every day, um, you know, you automatically feel like you're locked into a better sleep cycle. Like about the time you should be going to bed, you're genuinely tired. And, um, I find I sleep better. Um, and just, you know, when you work out in the morning, you go through your day and you just kind of have like that soreness, that good soreness that, oh, no matter how the rest of the day goes, I've already done something, you know, I've already accomplished something and I feel it in my body. I've already kind of done the work you know, or, or I've, or I've done a type of work that sort of invigorates me to sort of get through the rest of the things that I have to do today. Um, but as I've been working out, I, I got on the scale and I thought, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I could have lost like 10 pounds. And of course I didn't, I think the first time I did, I lost like a pound, two pounds. And, uh, so today I hopped on the scale. It looked like I'd lost five pounds, but, um, I think a lot of that's water weight too. I think as soon as you have breakfast or um, or hydrate, you you probably sort of technically balloon back up to where you were. But I tell you, I I really enjoy the exercises I've been doing. I found this YouTube channel. It's this English couple. I don't want to tell you what it's called. You know, if you, if you look up like home exercise, you'll probably find them and you'll you'll sort of figure out who I'm talking about. But um, oh, and I, speaking of my phone going off. I got a text here from my music buddy, uh, Jeff Campbell, really good guy. You should uh, Google him, try to find his music. Um, he has a great band called Pine and Battery, but also his solo music is great. He and I have been friends for years. Um, he just had a baby. So right before I started here, I texted him, congratulations. And, um, he's sending me nice stuff right now. So I'll respond to him a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I found this channel on YouTube. It's a sort of British couple and, uh, there's a part, I mean, the, the movements are, you know, I think I was saying in another episode, it's sort of like mom exercises or what I think of mom exercises. Like when I picture guys in the gym, it's like they're on the treadmill, they're lifting heavy weights. And then, uh, I picture the sort of aerobics class, right? With the stepper and the little resistance weights and you're sort of putting your arms in the air and you're sort of doing kind of like, almost like a dancer size or something like that. And, uh, 
And, uh, like the kind of exercises, like if you've ever watched The Biggest Loser, when they're having people who, you know, are not physical kind of be active for the first time, what are the types of movements that people do to just sort of get their cardio up and get their body moving and get their sweat going? It's a lot of that type of shit. So I, I definitely would not feel comfortable with people seeing me do it. But what I love about the exercises is the dude who leads it is so positive. It's a little saccharine, like it's not It's not how I want to talk to other people, but there's something about being this sort of like unconditional positive regard and encouragement that like when you're exercising for me is like very motivating. And it's surprising to me because I don't think I actually, like I don't think I talk to myself that way. You know, at other times we've talked about, you know, or maybe I should just speak from my own experience, but I think a lot of people are like me in that you kind of go through life thinking that you have to be your own drill sergeant and be hard on yourself. Um, uh, you know, there's a very famous guy who's sort of a super athlete named David Goggins and he's, you know, very hard on himself. And I, I think people who, I don't know if it's uh, CrossFit or whatever, but it's like, you got to beat yourself up and you got to take it to the max like Zach Morris and you got to fucking, you got to push hard and you got to give it your all. And, uh, you basically got to, Tell yourself that you're a little bitch and like beat the bitchness out of you uh, in order to be tough. Um, I don't take it to that extreme or maybe I should put it this way. I, I talk to myself that way sometimes, but that is a very hard place, especially as I get older. That's a very hard place for me to find motivation. If anything, it's discouraging, <laughs> you know, and there's something about showing up for exercising now where the guy's like, hey, take it at your own pace. If you need to pause, take a pause and you know, you trust your own process and your own speed. And if you, um, you know, the, the victory is showing up. The fact that you're doing this at all is a success and also working at a level where you're getting what you need out of the exercise, but that you're not so discouraged or you're not going to dread coming back tomorrow because, you know, the best exercise is the one that you do consistently. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if you wake up every day and dread this process, it's going to be very hard to maintain. Now, some people can do that, you know, like a professional athlete, it's about pushing your body to the limit. It's not about having fun. It's not about being encouraging. If you want to perform at a certain level, if you want to compete at a certain level, there's certain, you have to put in a certain amount of work, right? But for most of us, for most of us, it's called good enough for a reason, right? And so it's not about uh, giving it 110%. It's about doing what you feel capable of doing and just committing to the process. And so, uh, you know, I think if I was really trying to just go all out all of a sudden, I probably wouldn't have been able to work out 10 days in a row. But um, yeah, I'm thinking about, um, there's a Japanese author, Haruki Murakami, which you might have heard of. Uh, he wrote The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. You know, kind of a strange author. I, 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 I'm going. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but this will all make sense. But I first, but the first book I read of Murakami's was the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, probably like in 2000. I'm trying to think when I moved out, maybe like 2002 or something like that. Um, 2003 potentially. I don't know. I was 17 years old. I have to do the math, but. Um, but uh, I had just moved into my new place. The first when I moved out for the first time, I was living by myself in this duplex in Arizona, and I spent that whole first 
summer, I think I was there before school started doing a lot of reading. And I just had like a couple sticks of furniture. You know, I had like a recliner. And I remember I didn't even have a bed yet. I remember sleeping on that recliner for the first couple nights. And I remember I would just spend most of my days just sitting in that recliner in the center of my living room, just reading books. And I read maybe like 11 Murakami books. I read The Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Then I went all the way back to a book called A Wild Sheep Chase and just sort of read through everything that I think he had published up until that point. Um, and Murakami is kind of hard to get into because he sort of writes the same novel over and over again, which... Uh, I, really, it, it maybe some people who are fans of him would find that sort of like reductionistic, but I, I really do believe if you read like one or two Murakami no- novels, you've kind of read them all. Um, uh, but anyway, the point, <laughs> the only reason I'm even bringing him up is I do remember this quote where he was talking about his writing process, and he says, you know, there are people like, uh, who's the person I think of? Maybe Ian McEwen is an author who talks about, like, you have to write every day. Um, you know, you have to treat it like work. Whether or not you're productive, you kind of just have to show up. Uh, I, and I feel that way, too, sometimes about creativity, like with the muse. You can't just wait to be inspired. You have to show up and sort of invite the muse to show up and then just sort of get what you get out of that session. But, um, but Murakami said that he writes until he has about... He has a little bit left in the tank for tomorrow. You know, he doesn't just go, 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 go until he burns out. Because then he finds he doesn't return to the work the next day. He sort of gives a lot. He does his best. But he, he leaves about like 10%. When he has like 10, 15% left in the tank, he has a little bit of juice, a little place where he can pick up tomorrow. Some, um, some forward-moving momentum still is when he stops. And uh, that always stuck with me. And I feel that now. And I think uh, when I exercise, especially now, I, I believe me, by the end of it, I'm going hard. I'm certainly working at a max of mine, maybe not 110%, but I'm giving it my all, you know, all everything I can give in that moment. But I think, you know, I think the confluence of trying to be a little bit nicer to myself, um, you know, and sort of seeing the process as a whole, I think, has been helpful with me sticking with it. Now, let's revisit this conversation when I haven't worked out for another year, which is what happened last time. Um, but I, I think about this when I look back on my exercise history and my relationship with running, especially. You know, when I had an, when I have an event in front of me, like a half marathon, I've run a couple of those. Um, uh you know, it's easy for me to get motivated. I just sort of wake up and I look, I say, okay, I have three or four months or whatever it is before the event. I have to commit this schedule. And then I, then I do it and I, and I usually do very well. But usually once that event is over, (laughs) I don't run for months. You know, when I first started doing this podcast, I was running very regularly. And last November, I think is when we had the half marathon. And once it was done, once I crossed the finish line, I didn't run. I haven't, I didn't, I don't think I ran once since. There was a couple aborted attempts over the last year where I thought, oh man, I got to get active again. And so I would start running a mile, a mile and a half or something. But that, I, without consistency, I never really picked it up. And I think it was because I was just burnt the fuck out. You know, I think I enjoy running. You know, I enjoy being active. I enjoy being in the type of shape where I go, oh shit, man, you just get up and run nine miles. Like that's pretty fucking 
for for someone like me who's been sedentary for a lot of their life, that that feels pretty. Uh, that makes me feel pretty capable. But the fact that I don't continue with it also suggests that maybe I'm not. Maybe it's not registering for me in that moment or during that training. But I am getting burnt the fuck out. You know, it's just not sustainable. And so I always tell myself, well, if I could just get to a place where I ran three and a half miles a day or five miles a day, you know, if I could run 25 miles a week or something like that, that would, that would feel good. But I don't, I don't know. I think maybe running is something I'm able to push myself to do, to get myself to do for a finite amount of time. But I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't know that I really enjoy it. And, um, again, maybe it's because things, this is new the sort of exercises I'm doing now are new that I feel some momentum with them, but it's, it's kind of fun to just move your body in different ways. You know, um, it may sound like an obvious point, but you know, running nine miles is pretty repetitive and you can find a place where there's some scenery, but maybe it's also, it's also the ascetic in me or, um, you know, I just can't, I don't know when I ran, I never listened to music. You know, but there's something about what I'm doing now, which is you do these like, you know, sets of, you know, uh, movements that you sort of move through. That's, uh, it's much easier to work out for 45 minutes and do that than it just sort of runs straight for 45 minutes. <sighs> yeah. And it's also, I, you know, I need to be able to work out in a way that works with school. Uh, school started a couple weeks ago. It's, uh, it's been, it's, it's been both easy and challenging. Um, I'm taking a a math class this semester and, you know, it's, it's always, um, disappointing to me when I realize how hard it is for me to retain information. And I think, I think everybody's this way, but I'm taking calculus this semester and the first couple weeks is all quote, and I'm using air quotes here, review. We're doing like some trigonometry stuff. We're doing functions and it's like, I had this last semester. It's only been two months since I've looked at this. Or actually, I'm sorry. I, I took statistics last uh, last semester. But it's been a semester since I've seen this stuff. I, th- this is material that I spent an entire semester looking at and digesting and being tested on. You know, and not just looking at... I mean, I spent... You know, there's a Khan Academy. is sort of a well-known resource for people to sort of supplement their math classes or YouTube, you know, I spent a lot of time on YouTube sort of brushing up on stuff. And it's like, I just, it's like, I, I retain it for the time that I need it. And then I completely let it go. And it's just discouraging me. Like we're, we're working through this quote review stuff for calculus. And I'm thinking, I recognize it. I've worked through these problems before. And yet it's like, I'm starting all over again. I really, 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 really hope this is the last math class, last math class I ever have to take. You know, when I transfer to a four-year school, I actually don't even know, (laughs) I don't even know what classes I'll need to take, but I will be very disappointed if I look and it's like, it's, you know, more math. Man. I will say though, I think... I think the most interesting class I'm taking so far is ASL, American Sign Language. You know, we've spent a lot of time learning about deaf culture, which is very interesting. And, um, you know, I catch on pretty quickly. You know, I find that I, uh, at least in that class, I retain things very well. I, I can sort of see a sign once and it's very easy for me to recall. Um, 
maybe it's a creative thing. I don't know. Maybe it's being a visual learner. I'm not sure, but it, it seems to play to my strengths so far. But um, also very challenging to, to learn via Zoom. We have these, you know, there's one teacher who is deaf and uh, leads the lecture, but we also have this separate lab portion, which is facilitated by teaching assistants. And it's just kind of a nightmare. It's very hard when, you know, Zoom normally will highlight someone who's speaking based on the audio input. But without that input, Zoom does not recognize who to focus on. So it's very challenging to have someone like presenting slides to you and then like the facilitators are talking back and forth. It's just hard to know who to focus on. But we had this fucking crazy thing happen earlier the week, uh, earlier this week, which I've heard about. I never experienced it up till now. But we were in the middle of our uh, lab class and our Zoom meeting got crashed by like 10 people who came in obviously young people, but they just started screaming the N word and like picking out people that they could see on video and just like making fun of them. And I shit you not about 10 minutes before that, you know, I was like looking at myself in my zoom and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's early in the morning. I get it. Uh, I work late. You know, I, it, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to make excuses to say, I, I saw my fucking image in zoom and I thought, damn man, you look old. Like I looked tired. I kind of had bags under my eyes. I, my hair is so thin now that if it grows out at all, it just looks awful. Like I just, I have to be very consistent about, uh, buzzing it and keeping it close, you know, or else it just looks, I don't know. It just looks like weird to me. It looks better the closer that it's shaved. The more, the more frequently I shave it, the better it looks. And so I was just like, I saw my image. And I was like, damn, man, you look old. 10 minutes later, these dudes crash <laughs> our zoom meeting, start calling people out and making fun of them. And, uh, and they, and they, you know, they call me out. They say my name, like you old ass fuck, you you old fuck you. And I was like, how the fuck did these people know? You know, I was very stoic. You know, I think one thing I have is when when shit happens, when shit jumps off, like I just I don't really react. You know, I'm able to stay very calm. Um, it's bizarre to me that people start typing in the chat, like what's going on? And Hey, I, it's like, I, I very quickly recognize that people are crashing in and the thing to do here is not respond. Just wait for the, wait for them to go away, not giving them what they want. But it's like, people start freaking out. They're confused. Their heads on a swivel. They're looking for direction. And I'm just sort of sitting there. But after they call me out, it was like, uh, I don't know the, the teacher or someone like ended the zoom session all of a sudden um, and that's the end of it. But yeah, it's just surprising to me the way that people respond to things sometimes. I I find whenever shit jumps off or whenever something unexpected happens, I always usually keep very calm. Like I remember, um, sorry if I'm retelling stories, but there's two events that come to mind. One was one time I was getting out of my truck. I was parking near my place and I get out of my truck. I cross the street and all of this behind me, I hear this car crash and I turn around and someone who was trying to cross two lanes of traffic was T-boned by oncoming traffic and they flipped on their side and that vehicle was slammed into the front of my truck T- 15 seconds after I walked away from the vehicle. And so I just sort of, you know, sort of jog over there and this woman is like in complete shock, like crawling out of her car. But in that moment, even though I'm registering that something extreme is happening, I'm very calm. I'm able to sort of execute, you know, very clearly. Like I feel, and we'll see if, uh, we'll see if this 
ever actually happens, but I feel like, I hope I'm the type of person, like if, if I was ever on like a subway car and the thing got stuck, I would be the type of person who goes, all right, follow me. <laughs> you know, like I could be like a leader in those situations because I just sort of snap into action and start working. I think it's actually a benefit too, as like a crisis counselor. I mean, this is a skill I think I've always had, but it's something I think works well if you're working on the crisis lines also. All of a sudden you, the phone rings and you're in this situation that where you need to sort of um, take the lead or give be, be directive and sort of de-escalate, um, you know, a critical situation. But um, the other time, too, is I've told this story. Me and my girlfriend were uh, kind of spending a night out on the town in Oakland. We were leaving some bar, and uh, there were like eight kids, you know, who were just like terrorizing people on the street. And I knew we were in trouble because about mm, 20 feet ahead of us, maybe 30 feet ahead of us, um, they were sort of walking toward us and there was another couple in front of us. And as the other couple passed this group of eight or, you know, maybe seven or eight kids, one of them leans over into the, the girl's face and just screams in it just to like, you know, see her react or see her jump or see what her boyfriend would do. And they were basically just terrorizing people on the sidewalk. And I thought, as soon as I saw that, I went, oh, fuck. And as we started walking by them, they, I, they, you know, they all look at me, they start moving toward me and kind of like making a, a moon around me. So I kind of push my girlfriend aside and then they, they basically stop me in my tracks. They start to surround me and, you know, they start like t- kind of tugging at my clothes, kind of goading me, seeing what I'm going to do. One person starts to kind of like reach for my pocket and I just kind of brush them off and keep walking. And one of the guys basically just starts swinging at my head just repeatedly like swing, 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 swing as I'm walking away. He's not trying to hit me in the face. He's just trying to see if I'll do something. And I'm assuming that if I flinch or if I make even a gesture, like I'm going to strike back, I'm assuming I'm going to get jumped at that point. But all I'm doing is maintaining eye contact. I'm very, you know, kind of stoic in my face. So I'm not like, uh, I'm not going to turn my back to this guy, but I'm also not going to engage. And it's only after I'm out of that situation that I realize my heart is going a mile a minute. And I think, uh, (laughs) it's just surprising to me when I think about those moments where it's like, I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing consciously, but I'm always, I'm always happy with how I responded in that moment. Um, but it's only after I step away from it that I realize, oh shit, like that was like a really uh, elevated situation. So anyway, not that someone crashing your Zoom meeting is anything comparable to that, but it's, uh, I don't know, it just sort of aligns on that character. I think the point I'm really trying to make though is I was called an old fuck, which really bothered me. You know, I'm 35, I'm not decrepit. But it is funny how you realize how people see you. Like, if you ever want to know who you are or how people see you, it's like whatever kids call you. Or someone used to say this. I don't know who this was, but someone used to say, if you ever want to know how people see you, like cut someone off in traffic, and when they flip you off and call you something, that's who you are to people. Like, if they say, fuck you, fat ass, like, that's kind of how people see you. Or people go, fuck you, baldy, or fuck you, short stuff. Like, (laughs) that's what people register. It's also weird. This is also a weird one, too. In ASL, like most languages, you know, you learn pleasantries. You learn, hello, my name is so-and-so. And then you learn how to describe things. Oh, brown hair, mustache, you know. So we have these kind of awkward sessions in uh, ASL where we're sort of paired off and we're having to 
describe ourselves and introduce ourselves, or we're, we're having to describe other classmates. And there's two things that have come up that are actually very interesting. One is gender, because as far as the text goes, you know, there's male and female. And of course, as soon as this comes up, we all know those signs, you know, we digest those very easily, and they do apply to, I think, most people in the class. But it doesn't apply to everybody. And so it becomes this kind of awkward conversation is we're being asked, uh, oh, describe this person. And one of them is like, what is their gender? And it's like, we can't really assume, you know, that's that's not where we're at as as a society right now. You know, so it's been kind of an awkward thing of like having to ask the facilitators, like, can I, before you ask me to like uh, name someone else's gender, can we like go around the room and ask how people identify, like that type of stuff? And the teacher is, you know, being very good about supplementing the material with, with interesting signs. And I mean, obviously, uh, like our own culture, you know, we're sort of digesting our own new terms for how people identify in terms of their gender. And sign is doing the same thing, you know, um, I mean, one interesting point is people say, what is the sign for such and such? You know, there's a widely accepted sort of signs for many things, but sometimes it's not, it's not just the sign for something, it's a sign for something. That is one way to sign that word. And especially as the language is needing to encompass new terms, there are new signs as well. So uh, that's been interesting. Um, the second part is the description part, like having to describe people. And... Uh, it's just funny, like, especially being an adult student, like, uh, the, seeing the moments where you're, you're clearly different than your, your younger classmates. You know, I try to be self-deprecating and like, when I see other people describing me and they say like, oh, dark hair, and I correct them and I, I give the sign for bald <laughs> and they get a good chuckle out of that. But it's like, they, they probably were wondering if it was appropriate to call me bald. Um, you know, they were trying to be generous and polite by, by saying I had a hair color, which I do technically. But I, it's like, I, I like to let people know, it's okay, call me bald. Like, I'm cool with that. But anyway. <sighs> I will say, true to form, though, since school started, it's um, it's been an impediment to my leisure reading. I mean, I was just plowing through books before school started. Even at the end of last semester, I was plowing through books. I've started keeping a list of everything I'm reading, you know, what it is, when I start it, when I finish it. And I think since October, last October, I read like 32 books or something like that. And uh, and for some reason, out of nowhere, I've, I've gotten back into Russian literature. I mean, I was saying uh, I've been reading a lot of Stephen King and Elmore Leonard and all this sort of popular fiction. And I think just because it was laying here, I had... Uh, Oh, I returned to The Adolescent by Dostoevsky, which we've talked about. It's not great. Sort of um, not, uh, I don't want to say an outlier, although a bit of an outlier, but sort of confusing considering it's the, you know, it, 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 it's, the, it's the penultimate novel before Brothers Karamazov, which is, you know, widely considered one of the best books of all time. I haven't read it. Our previous MVP, Matt Evans, on the podcast read it recently and said it was great. I plan to read it pretty soon. But it's just interesting that it's sort of, markedly not very good novel, at least as far as I feel about it, sort of predates someone's masterpiece. But maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's, excuse me, maybe that's not uncommon. But the point is, is it was sort of fortuitous, because as I'm reading this, I mentioned getting um, getting uh, George Saunders' new book in the mail, which my brother had bought and sent me, which is about 
Russian literature, which was fitting. But uh, I think for now, I've, <laughs> I've, I've really enjoyed reading popular fiction, but I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of leaning back into the more heavier stuff, you know, getting back into the Russian literature stuff, working through Dostoevsky especially. But um, I had this double-bound, sort of nice hardcover copy of... Uh, uh, Richard Prevere and Larissa Volokonsky's translation of The Double and The Gambler. And uh, we touched on them briefly. I think I was in the middle of The Double last time we were speaking, but I've, I've since finished it and The Gambler. And I gotta say, The Double, even though it's an early Dostoevsky story, it's one of my favorites. It, it may even be my favorite story, at least of what I've read of his so far. Um, it's very Gogolian, you know, in the sort of absurdist plot. But I genuinely believe... You know, and I don't think they would have used this term at the time. But I think the double, at least in, of what I've read, is probably the most interesting and kind of poignant and profound depictions of, you know, what I uh, interpret as mental illness that I can think of. Um, you know, you the, the, the novel begins with this sort of titular counselor uh, uh, who is awkward. He's socially awkward. People don't really understand him when he speaks. Um, you can tell his thoughts are sort of, um, a little, uh, his speech is compressed. His thoughts are, uh, just discursive. His narrative, his narrative is discursive when he speaks. People don't know what he's driving at necessarily, but he has this momentum and the novel begins with him sort of visiting his doctor, and his doctor even struggles to really kind of engage with him or understand what's going on with him. He uh, bursts onto this social gathering that he's not invited to. He clearly, he's embarrassed himself in public at other times, and he's been uninvited from future engagements, but he shows up anyway, um, which he doesn't understand. And uh, there's this sort of supernatural element where he encounters his doppelganger, uh, invites him sort of back to his house. The person ends up working alongside them. And so there's this weird kind of fight club element where you could sort of assume like, well, maybe this is all in the person's head, right? Like clearly an element of the story is that this person is not, there's, there's something unsettled about them. There's something, there's something not quite right, right? They're living with some kind of impairment, some kind of, uh, some kind of disorder that's keeping them from engaging on a sort of uh, entirely cogent level, if that makes sense. But, you know, everybody else recognizes this person is not really unsettled by the fact that the complete doppelganger of this other individual has sort of entered the workforce. And But it's just, uh, it, it's, it's like Gogol in that there's really nothing else like it. It's sort of absurd. Um, you know, when you read through Russian literature, you know, with like Pushkin or Lermontov, you sort of see this trajectory, these sort of like a Byronic heroes. And then all of a sudden you get to Gogol and you're like, where did this come from? You know, it's like, I almost think of like uh, French classical or concert music around the time of Debussy and Ravel. And then all of a sudden you have Eric Satie pops his head up and you're like, who is this person? What tradition do they follow from? You know, they're, they're, they're sort of, they're definitely modern, but they're almost like, it's almost like they were born in the wrong time or something. We don't really see where they come from. They're form, they, they are influential. They sort of impact the course of uh, creative thinking after their time, but it's not always clear where they came from or what tradition they follow from. They sort of 
just kind of reset, they kind of reset the clock or whatever it is. But that's kind of what Gogol did. And so this early Dostoevsky uh, story is very Gogolian. Um, but it's almost better. It sort of marries like the absurdity of Gogol, but like the deep, almost like creative, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like the, the just the, almost like the, the, art, the artistic unity of Dostoevsky. It's just, it's such an early story and it's so deep. You know, it's just the type of story that I've, I probably read it like four or five times now. And every time I read it, it just like it still impacts me. And it ends on this very interesting sort of, again, almost ambivalent supernatural note, but also very, very poignant. Almost like the end of, um, uh, is it, I believe it's Streetcar Named Desire, right? I've always depended on the kindness of strangers. You know, the sort of uh, the, the, the men in the white coats and the butterfly nets come to take her away. Or even I'm thinking there's the what's the movie with Woody Allen or with the Woody Allen film with um, Kate Blanchett um, that ultimately I, I believe she has like a mental breakdown. Um, it's that it's that kind of experience where it's sort of the end and sort of getting taken away by the doctors to the kind of sympathy but confusion of people around him and uh, just a very poignant story. So I would highly recommend it. Right. Um, the other story that's coupled with it is The Gambler, which I think was the first Dostoevsky story I ever wrote. It's much more straightforward, but an interesting story around that. And I think I alluded to it another time, saying it's just insane when you read it and you it just it feels so fully formed and you realize how quickly it was written. I think the story is, you know, Dostoevsky was, he basically had to fulfill a publishing obligation or else he would have lost the rights to his publishing. I think he signed a contract where kind of like a record deal or an actor will have like a, you know, a five novel deal or a five film deal or something like that. Dostoevsky was contracted to complete X number of published pieces for a publisher. And if he failed to meet it, he would lose all the publishing rights to his previous work. So he's you know, in a rush to sort of complete this project. And I think he writes the gambler via dictation. He sort of orates the story to a dic- uh, a dictator, if that's the right word, um, to someone who dictates the story. He eventually marries her, but I think they did it in two weeks. And it's just insane to think, wow, like what an incredible story. Very, very good. And Dostoevsky too. I mean, it's a very poignant story about gambling. And like other points of Russian literature, there's a couple things that if they come up in a Russian story, they're usually one of the highlights of the novel or the short story. One is gambling, one is battles or war, and the other one is uh, dueling. If any of those three comes up, I don't know I don't know what it is about Russian writers, but they seem to execute those very well. But when you read The Gambler, there's a couple of sequences where you know people get sort of wrapped up at the roulette table and they're gambling, and you really feel the energy. And Dostoevsky himself was a... Was a um, I don't know if you'd say a degenerate gambler, but um, definitely addicted to gambling. And uh, so it's something that you realize, oh, of course he's writing about it very well. He knows about it from personal experience. When you read War and Peace, there's actually a couple great gambling scenes also, especially in the early first part. There's someone who loses a significant amount of money, of a uh, significant amount of his father's money gambling. And it's, uh, it's one of the, the moments in the novel that really sticks out in your mind. But I think Tolstoy also lost a fair amount of money in gambling. <laughs> I'm, I'm less clear about that, though. <clears throat> but we'll see. After finish, I'm actually, I just started reading Notes from a Dead House, <sighs> um, which is sort of Dostoevsky's novelized 
a version of his own experience in a Siberian labor camp. Very interesting story with Dostoevsky. I think we talked about this when I was reading Demons, which is about a sort of progressive, um, rebellious political faction. And I think they, it's a conspiracy to, to, to assassinate someone, more or less. And uh, although Dostoevsky wasn't part of, a, of a, a, an assassination plot, he was a very liberal, progressive political thinker in his youth. I think he sort of assisted with publishing sort of, uh, you know, anti-government papers or publications or whatever. And when he was caught, he was arrested and they had a mock execution. You know, all the participants were convinced that they were going to die, but uh, at the, it was all staged. At the last minute, someone rides in and, and pardons them and uh, they get sent to a prison camp. But I think Dostoevsky spent like four years in a Siberian camp. And at that point, usually people are exiled. And I think he spent some time in exile, married, and then petitioned to return to to one of the capitals of Russia, probably St. Petersburg. But um, it's just one of those lives and stories where <laughs> you read about the great composers or you read about the great authors, and their lives just, I mean, they're they're tragic, but they're also eventful. You know, it really makes you think about what you can accomplish. You know, you think, wow, Dostoevsky spent like four years in prison, more or less. Just very different times. Exiled. Jesus Christ, could you imagine being exiled? <clears throat> you know, you participate in some political march and you get exiled. You get sent to Fiji for four years and you have to basically ask to come back to the United States and they either do or do not let you return. Jesus Christ. A lot of people, Ovid, I believe also was exiled. I, I don't know if the metamorphosis was written in exile, but I believe Ovid was exiled also. There have to be many other cases. There might be a couple that you're thinking of that you're thinking I would, I should know or should name, but I can't think of them. <clears throat> yeah, and also I haven't really been watching movies. I find a, I don't know if it's just because I'm in school, but it's like I, I sitting down for two hours and watching a movie now, even though that's like what I was doing with a lot of my time in the last couple months, especially. I don't know. There's something about sitting down for a movie. I just it doesn't seem doesn't seem to do it for me. I watched. Uh, I did watch Saw. <laughs> the horror movie from the franchise founding uh, horror film from 2002, 2004, or something like that. Or I should say, I, I, I tried to watch it. I skipped through a fair amount of it. But, um, you know, the, the, the I don't know if you want to call it a frame story, but there's this central sort of inciting story where these two guys wake up in a room and they're trying to figure out why they're there and what's going on. That central story is actually pretty fucking engaging. You know, it's weird that it's the lead actor from Princess Bride. It's weird to to sort of uh, to see him. You know, he's a little uh, softer, we'll say, and uh, it's just a little. Uh, it's weird to sort of imagine him in Princess Bride in this film. <clears throat> but there's a lot of garbage in that movie, also. A lot of the sort of horror porn set pieces are pretty awful, so you have to skip through those. And then uh, some of the plot elements outside of that room are pretty shitty. So I fast forwarded through some through through some of that stuff. But when it returns to that central room where those guys are trying to figure out what's going on, it's pretty fucking cool. And even though probably less effective, there's this interesting plot twist at the end, which I I, I saw the film in theaters when it came out. 
I remember being like, oh shit, that's so dope. Less impressive because I knew it was coming, but I gotta say, man, horror movies take a certain level of commitment from actors that uh, I just think is, uh, it's hard to muster. There's this final moment where, you know, there's this sort of villain reveal at the very end of the film, and he's walking out, and and one of the characters in the film is, you realize, going to be left in fetters in this dungeon, and they're sort of reaching out to them, screaming like, no, don't leave me, that kind of thing. And there's the physical commitment that it takes to sell those moments is fucking insane. And you just go, man, being self-conscious does not lend itself well to, to to the camera actor. anyway um yeah what else to say it's actually 420 right now (laughs) spark up bros I gotta be honest I do miss it I do miss smoking weed your boy hasn't ingested a mind altering substance in I don't know maybe four years now I have to think about it I was actually thinking about that the other day. I mean, I, every once in a while I do think about weed. There's like a dispensary like right at the street from me. And gosh, sometimes I do wish I could just walk up there and just... I miss the smell. I miss the ritual. I miss all that stuff. I mean, I miss being high. Excuse me. I miss being high also, but it's just weird for me to think. You know, there's been so many different chapters in my life. And it's just, I, I you know, I've probably spent... Jeez, I mean, it's sad when you put it this way, but, you know, I've, I've spent more... I've spent, I've spent more evenings intoxicated in my life probably than not intoxicated. That's probably not true, because, you know, I mean, if you really t- tally it up, like, with your childhood, I mean, I probably started... You know, I mean, I was sort of a... I got a young start with this stuff. I mean, I had my first cigarettes when I was, like, 11. I was a pack-a-day smoker by my freshman year of high school. I was smoking weed pretty regularly, I would say definitely more regularly than my peers, but I would say relatively regularly in my early teens, like probably got some energy around 12, pretty regular around 13. And by 15, it was just like, I was kind of doing it all, you know, drinking regularly, smoking weed regularly until I was, you know, I stopped drinking the first time when I was 22. Is that right? No, that was smoking. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I lied. I quit smoking when I was 22. I quit smoking cigarettes when I was 22 and quit that for eight, eight years. I wasn't a regular pot smoker for probably most of my life, but there was about, you know, three or four years where I was in my mid twenties. Um, but just strange to think like if I were to get high or, or, or drink, I'm sure the next morning would be awful. And to just think, oh, I spent years of my life this way. Like this was just how I woke up. You know, and you think, well, you, now, now I'm, I'm very lucky. I get up and I can exercise and I do productive things. <sighs> and yet, I don't, I don't know if I regret it necessarily. You know, those were important chapters of my life too. And you know, maybe, maybe part of eventually stopping is being hard on yourself in those times. But maybe I'm just sort of trying to make a forced connection to what we were talking about earlier. But it's like. In hindsight, kind of 
you know, let's assume that the future would have been what it is going to be. And at some point you will stop when you're ready. I kind of wish I was nicer to myself in those times also. You know, if I, if I had just said, Hey man, this is what you're doing now and that's cool and you're young and it's okay. And life is long and yeah, you can afford to have a couple years where you're (laughs) smoking weed every day. That's not the end of the world. You know, I, I, I wish I could have spared myself some of that when I was younger because I, I do, you know, I do wonder sometimes if uh, it's impacted my ability to retain information. I mean, and you also really can't predict the behavioral impact of this stuff, especially when you consume it in a, a, your develop, uh, developing ages. You know, who knows what regular drinking or smoking cigarettes or smoking weed has on someone who's younger. You know, as someone who's spent a lot of time in therapy and has struggled with their own mental health at times, um, you know, it's just hard to know how impacted your brain, brain chemistry has been by those experiences. But I will say the body is resilient as well. You know, we'll see. Life is long and who knows, maybe I'll have a lung cancer diagnosis in about 10 years that can be directly traced to my... I mean, we, I mean I, I, I've tried to think about this. If you had to think about some measurement of substances. Like if you took all the beer that you've ever drinking in your life and dumped it into a swimming pool, would it fill the swimming pool? Would it, would it feel, fill two swimming pools? Or cigarettes. If you just think of all the cigarette butts, if every cigarette you've ever smoked were collected together, what would it look like? We, I mean, obviously, we. I mean, I, I, the, the image I'm thinking of is wheelbarrows full. I remember one time someone, someone telling me, "Oh, they've done wheelbarrows of of cocaine," and I just thought that was such a viscerally clear image, just wheelbarrows full of cocaine. And I thought, "Holy shit, what a gritty way to describe it!" But I thought, you know, think about that cigarettes. How many? If all the cigarette butts of every cigarette I've ever smoked were collected, how, what would it look like? Would it fill a swimming pool? Disgusting. I think I'd be mortified. I'd probably be mortified by the amount of pizza I've eaten in my life. If you saw every pizza box I've ever eaten, that'd be fucking mortifying. Oh, Jesus. It's amazing how resilient the body is, though. I mean, I've spent the last year feeling completely sedentary. And uh, still got a long way to go. But, you know, if you just work out 10 days in a row... The body wants, it's like the body wants to be healthy. You know, the body wants to do well. It's like the body's thanking you for being physical. Thank you for getting my blood going. Thanks for getting this heart rate up. Thank you for doing this. The body wants to move, man. (laughs) Watch out, motivational speech tour coming your way. The body wants to move, man. The body electric. What is that? The Body Electric. Is that a piece of music? Is that like a Philip Glass? Something like that? An opera? Something like that? Have you ever seen Einstein on the beach? What a piece of shit. Philip Glass? It's like two and a half hours of... Go ahead on YouTube and look up Einstein on the beach. Like full performance. I'm sure there is one up there. Try to watch more than 15 minutes of it. I think it starts off with like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two. 
Jesus fucking Christ, man. And that's the kind of shit that like artsy fartsy people just smile and nod at and go, oh, it's brilliant. I love it. What's your favorite opera? Einstein on the beach. It's just, it's so great. It's like, no, it's not. I'm not saying it wasn't influential. I'm not saying there isn't cool stuff going on. I'm I'm not saying you can't find 15 minutes in, in all four and a half hours of it or however long it is that are interesting. But talk about tedium. I mean, I had a music teacher one time who, you know, I was sort of first getting into concert music and I was just like devouring the history of like classical music and all sorts of stuff. And every week I would have some new thing I was listening to. And I remember we were talking about Wagner and he, I always think of him. I was thinking about him yesterday, actually in the car. I've been listening. I've had classical radio on in my car lately. I'm like sick of my iPod or sick of uh, Spotify. I go through these periods where I just sort of turn on classical radio and uh, they actually, uh, I think there was like one of the Met broadcasts or something. I think because they're not performing, they're playing old broadcasts. So if I happen to be driving around on the weekend or something, I hear some of these broadcasts. But anyway, the point is I was thinking about Wagner. And I remember one time I was talking about Wagner with my teacher. And he gave me this gesture like, oh, like a yawn, like, oh, Wagner's so boring. But I also remember him telling me that Einstein on the Beach was like his favorite opera. And I'm like, dude, are you fucking crazy? How could you get through that shit? There's like a sort of pretentious art staring contest. It's like we're all pretending like we have to like this shit and we're all smiling and nodding going, oh, isn't this great? But it's not. Nobody's enjoying it. It's like when you're in a cult. Everyone else, every every individual is thinking it's nonsense, but they're looking into the eyes of the the people around them who are not betraying their own lack of belief in this. I was actually, I mean, you know, one thing that comes up for me all the time in this lane is the the Pynchon novel Gravity's Rainbow, which is a hateful reading experience. And people love that shit, man. I can't even bring myself to read Dubliners, or uh, sorry, not Dubliners, uh, Ulysses. I've tried that a couple times, and I just think, Jesus Christ. Dubliners is incredible. And maybe Ulysses is too, but I just can't fucking, I can't bring myself to do it. But it's interesting, I, I, I was thinking about Gravity's Rainbow because I saw the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson version of uh, his film adaptation of Inherent Vice. You know, Pynchon used to release like one novel every 10, 15, 20 years or so. And then there was just this fucking, he just spewed out a bunch of novels in like the mid-2000s. Or right, or I should say uh, around 2010-ish, I believe. Maybe like from 2005 on, there was like Inherent Vice Against the Day. Bleeding Edge, I believe, is another one. Um, but yeah, I remember Inherent Vice came out, and I think almost like The Crying A Lot 49, it was like people who didn't really know Pynchon but kind of wanted to check him out. Like that was, a, that was a welcomingly thin novel. It wasn't like the telephone book that Against the Day was or uh, Gravity's Rainbow is. And uh, I never read it, but I, I saw the Paul Thomas Anderson uh, film version of it recently, and I was like, yeah, this movie sucks, man. This is exactly what you would expect a, a fucking pension, uh, a filmed pension novel to be. It's super confusing. Who gives a shit? Nothing really happens. It's just sort of confusing, and kind of a weird. I, a lot. I mean, I think we were talking about this in terms of Quentin Tarantino, but like when you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think this you could probably say this of of a lot of Quentin Tarantino's last few movies, but especially of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
it is a celebrity clusterfuck. The casting doesn't really make sense. Al Pacino sticks out like a sore thumb. Kurt, Kurt Russell and uh, Zoe Bell are like shoehorned into that movie. Which is, hey, it's Quentin Tarantino's movie. He probably wanted to hang out with these people. I think, uh, I think presumably it, it may have been his last film, right? I think he always said he was going to make nine films and then stop. Um, but it's just kind of fucking like, I don't know. You're, you're so distracted by the people that are in the movie that you're, it's hard to get sucked into the story. Brad Pitt, that is Brad Pitt's fucking movie. Brad Pitt steals that whole fucking movie. But um, Inherent Vice is the same way. You know, Joaquin Phoenix is very dedicated. Um, but, like, Joanna Newsome is in the fucking movie. And you're like, what the fuck? Why is Joanna... I'm, I'm watching every time she pops up. I'm, I'm not... I'm, get, I'm taken out of the story. Because I'm like, why is Joanna Newsome in this film? How did this happen? It's just kind of a cool kind of celebrity stunt casting thing. Um, Josh Brolin is like... Uh, you know, he does a pretty committed job in that movie. Martin Short, you're like, what the fuck? He just pops up and you're like, Jesus Christ. It's jarring. <sighs> anyway, I don't know. I don't know where we end up with this podcast. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck we're talking about. I think I'm, I think I've, <laughs> I feel pretty sped up. I feel kind of manic myself with this episode. I think I feel guilty about not putting out an episode on Monday. And uh, wanting to carve out time to to put this one out there that I think I just, uh, almost like a talking bear, I just sort of pulled the string back and just let just let it fucking rip. So who knows? I, I, I don't know if this was a satisfying episode or not. Um, but this is, uh, this is the good enough episode. This is, uh, you know, we got one on the books. 73 was just one for the books. And hopefully by this weekend when it's time to record 74... Uh, we'll have epiphanies for you. We'll have fireworks and insight for you. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, take a minute, rate and review us if you haven't already. Give us five stars. That can convince people who are considering listening. Seeing a five-star review with a couple sentences about why you like the podcast can be enough to have someone check it out. Um, and Also, if you can think of someone in your life, who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Uh, That's it for now. Until next time, thank you for listening, thank you for your time, and a ciao for now.